This is Our American Stories. We're about to tell you a story about a dictator and a dissident. The story of Fidel Castro told through the story of a man he imprisoned. And before we do that, I wanted to just share a touch from Umberto Fontova's piece about Fidel Castro's death. Just to give you a context to the story we're about to tell you. Fidel Castro jailed and tortured political prisoners at a higher rate than Stalin during the Great Terror. He murdered more Cubans in the first three years in power than Hitler murdered Germans during his first six. Castro shattered through mass executions, mass jailings, mass larceny and exile virtually every family on the island of Cuba. Many opponents of the regime qualify as the longest-suffering political prisoners in modern history, having suffered prison camps, forced labor, and torture chambers for a period three times as long in Fidel Castro's gulag as Alexander Solzhenitsyn suffered in Stalin's. And by the way, Solzhenitsyn's remarkable Harvard speech you can get on our This Day in Histories. It's one of the great speeches ever delivered in history on United States soil. Fidel Castro also came closest of anyone in history to starting a worldwide nuclear war. In the above process, Castro converted a highly civilized nation with a higher standard of living than much of Europe and swamped with immigrants into a slum ravaged by tropical diseases and with the highest suicide rate in the entire Western Hemisphere. Over 20 times as many people have died trying to escape Castro's Cuba as died trying to escape East Germany. And yet prior to Castroism, Cuba received more immigrants per capita than almost any nation on Earth, more than the U.S. did, including the Ellis Island years per capita. And so with that as a background and Fidel Castro's recent death, We bring you a column, and it's one of the rare times I'll do a reading, uh, but it's a story that I think you'll enjoy if such things are possible to enjoy. The Dictator and the Dissident, the story of Fidel Castro and Armando Valladares. It's a part of the Fidel Castro story Michael Moore won't tell or doesn't know. It's a story you certainly didn't hear as the media endlessly opined about Castro's complicated legacy, but it reveals so much more about the dictator than any other story could tell. The year was 1959. Castro, a young revolutionary, had seized Cuba's imagination with talk of democracy and a new vision for its people. It didn't take long, however, for one follower to discover Castro's true nature and for Castro to run up against the limits of his own earthly power. Armando Valladares may not have been the first man to challenge the Cuban dictator, but he eventually became the best known. By his own account, the young Valladares was an early supporter of Castro's revolution, taking a job in the office of the Ministry of Communications for the Revolutionary Government, where he worked as a postal clerk. But things changed when he was asked to put a communist slogan on his desk. It comprised of three simple words. I'm with Fidel. Amadaro Valladares refused. A young artist and poet who also happened to be a Christian, Valladares understood the meaning of the request. 
What he did not know and could not know was just how far his own government would go to bend his will. Soon after his refusal to comply, Valladares was arrested by political police at his parents' home. Faced with trump-up charges of terrorism, a favorite tactic of the Castro regime for silencing dissent, he was given a 30-year sentence. Valladares would spend time in different prisons for the next 22 years. The first, La Cabana, forged some of his very worst memories. Quote, Each night, the firing squad executed scores of men in its trenches, he told the Beckett Fund, which last year honored him with its Canterbury Prize, given annually to a person who embodies an unfailing commitment to religious freedom. Quote, We could hear each phase of the executions, and during this time, these young men, patriots, would die shouting, Long live Christ, the King, down with communism. And then you would hear the gunshots. Every night there were shootings. Every night, every night, every night. Years passed, and the communists fixated on enrolling prisoners in re-education programs. Valladares, still in his early sentence, was offered the chance at, quote, political rehabilitation. But again, he refused to comply. He was sent then to an even more brutal prison, and the government ramped up its efforts to break his spirit. Again, quoting Valadaris, I spent eight years locked in a blackout cell without sunlight or even artificial light. I never left. I was stuck in that cell, ten feet long, four feet wide, with a hole in the corner to take care of my bodily needs, no running water, naked. Eight years. All of the torture, all of the violations of human rights, he said, had one goal. Break him, break his resistance, and make him accept political rehabilitation. That, he said, was their only objective. And when we come back, this showdown between the dictator and the dissident, which you won't believe the ending, this remarkable story of individual conscience and its inability to be suppressed by even the greatest and one of the world's most feared leaders. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. The life of Fidel Castro understood through one man's struggle. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. We continue the story, The Dictator and the Dissident, the story of Fidel Castro 
and Armando Valladares. I wrote this for the National Review. It's posted there. You can take a read, send it to friends. We pick up after having learned that Valadares had spent eight years in solitary. And I mean straight solitary. After nearly a decade, prison officials adjusted their terms once again. If Armando would simply sign a document renouncing his beliefs, he could return to his family. The choice was simple. To Valladares, physical freedom or spiritual liberty. Quote, For many people, it wasn't practical to resist. Better to sign the paper and just leave, Valladares said. But for me, signing that paper would have been spiritual suicide. I couldn't do it. So how did Valladares endure? How did his faith, his spirit, manage itself during these years alone in prison? Quote, In the beginning I embraced God, perhaps for fear of losing my life, since I was in danger of being executed, he told the National Association of Evangelicals, in 1983, but hearing those men proclaim their love for Christ just prior to their executions moved him in ways he could never have imagined. Again, quoting from him in this terrific speech, I realized then that Christ could be of help to me, not merely by saving my life, but also giving my life and my death, if that was the case, an ethical sense that would dignify all of us. I believe that it was at that particular moment and not before when Christianity, besides being a religious faith, became a way of life that in my own circumstances resulted in resistance. Resisting torture, resisting confinement, resisting hunger, and even resisting the constant temptation to join that political rehabilitation and indoctrination program that would have ended my predicament. The battle lines were drawn for Valadares. The material life versus the spiritual life. Castro and his earthly ambitions of a utopian dictatorship versus Jesus Christ and his promise of everlasting life for those who follow him. And by the way, when you study Wilberforce, Martin Luther King, the abolition movement, you find this recurring theme in Christianity. Bonhoeffer. Heroism beyond belief, done because of human faith in God. Back to the story. Castro fought harder, desperate now to strip Valadares of his most valuable possession, his sense of decency. But once again, Valadares' faith proved up to the task. Quote, To be Christian, he said, under those circumstances meant that I could not hate my tormentors. It meant to maintain the belief that the suffering was meaningful because if man gives up his moral and religious values or if he allows himself to be carried by a desire to hate or for revenge, his very existence loses all meaning. Ayodaros noted often that he was not alone in his spiritual battle with Castro. His fellow Christians always showed him the way. Again, quoting him from this speech, the National Evangelical Association. I saw dozens of Christians suffering and dying, committed like myself to maintaining their dignity, 
and their richness of spirit beyond misery and beyond pain. I remember with emotion Gerardo Gonzalez, a Protestant preacher, who knew by heart the whole biblical of passages and who would copy them, share them with his brothers in belief in prison. I cannot forget this man whom all of us called brother in faith. He interposed himself before a burst of machine gun fire to save other prisoners who were beaten in what is known now as the massacre of Boniata Prison. Gerardo repeated before dying the very words said by Christ himself on the cross, quote, Forgive them, brothers, and Father, for they know not what they do. And all of us, when the blood had dried, struggled with our own conscience to attain something so difficult, so beautiful, the ability to forgive our enemies. Valladaris' God, too, showed him the way and the light. Again, quoting him from this speech, There are no impossibilities for those who love and seek God. The more ferocious the hate of my jailers, the more my heart would fill with love and a faith that gave me strength to support everything, but not with the conformist or masochistic attitude, rather filled with joy, internal peace, and freedom, because Christ walked with me in my cell. While in prison, Valadaris began to write poetry, denouncing his oppressors. Without paper or pen, he wrote on cigarette papers and onion skins, using his own blood as ink. His wife, whom he met in prison, smuggled those poems to the outside world, and they became an international bestseller. From My Wheelchair was the book of poems released in 1977. Quote, there is nothing dictators fear more than artists, Valadaris told that evangelical association, but especially poets. In one particular poem, Life Was Not Enough, dedicated to Pedro, Pedro Luis Boitel, whom he called an unforgettable brother, he expanded on this thought. Life was not enough for you in that torture chamber. But there were rifle butts and boots to spare, buckets of urine and excrement thrown in your face. They could not forgive you your labors of light and words. They feared your smile, the eloquence of your hands. They feared the fertility of your ideas and your manner of being silent. They feared your life, Pedro. And so they murdered you. Today, Valadaris paints rather than writes poems. His pictures are not scenes of torture and darkness, though, but vibrant landscapes that depict his soul, the refuge where he survived Castro's war on his body, Castro's war on his conscience. Castro is dead, and there will be countless biographies dedicated to burnishing his legacy. But the best way to understand Castro's life is to appreciate Valadaris's. Valadaris's story may never be required reading in Cuban schools, but it must be in every American school. Call the story The Dictator and the Dissident. It's a hell of a yarn. And it is.
When we come back, we'll read one more poem from Valladares, and we're going to play a clip from a remarkable speech he gave at the Beckett Fund about individual conscience, freedom of thought, and the spiritual life. It's a bit more about some statistics on Castro and Cuba. According to scholars and researchers at the Cuba Archive, Castro regime's total death toll from torture, prison beatings, firing squads, machine gunning of escapees and drownings approached 100,000. All of this confirmed, by the way, by Amnesty International, a pretty important group when it comes to human rights. Cuba's population in 1960 was 6.4 million. According to the same human rights groups and to Freedom House, 500,000 Cubans, young, old, male, and female, have passed through Castro's prison and forced labor camps. This puts Fidel Castro's political incarceration rate right up there with his hero, Joseph Stalin. Again, things you need to know about Castro, things you're not hearing, and most importantly, when we come back, the voice of Valladares. And by the way, what a movie. It would play like a Cuban Braveheart. And again, more poetry from Armando Valladares as well. The life of Fidel Castro. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and the life of Fidel Castro is understood through one dissident, Armando Valladares. And before we read you one of his poems, and one that the Beckett Fund, a terrific religious liberty organization, shared with us called A Minute of Salt, which Valladares dedicated to all of those Cubans who perished in the ocean, trying to escape their homeland. That dark passage. And just some facts before I read it from the Beckett Fund. In 1960, now imagine this, picture this in your head. Cuba had 7 million people. 1.2 million current Cuban exiles live in this country. That means that between 15 and 20% of the people of Cuba fled 
and risk death. By the way, the only time you see percentages reaching that ratio is the Great Potato Famine of Ireland, where people had a very stark choice. Move or die. Move or starve to death. And by the way, so many of those Cubans moored themselves in two particular parts of the country. Miami and a town in northern New Jersey that is the town my mother and father grew up in. And Cuban exiles took it over. West New York, New Jersey and the surrounding areas where some 100 to 125,000 Cubans live now. And I learned about so many of these stories, spending time amongst the folks there, playing basketball, sitting at shops, eating lunches. So here's the poem he wrote to those people who died. A Minute of Salt, it's called. To the thousands of men, women, and children who have perished in the sea trying to flee communism, a minute of salt for the silence of those who could not return to dust. Jehovah surely forgot about the waters, about those who died in the beating wave, their mouths filled with algae, their eyes devoured by the fish, about those who became anchors of swollen flesh or modern Jonahs quartered in the bellies of sharks. A minute of salt for the silence of those who dissolved unnamed and unremembered. Those who sank while searching for the light and the word. Those who were swept away by lead while on their rafts dreaming of freedom. Those who have neither tombstones nor tombs nor crosses. Those who lie I know not where. Because there are no tombs in the sea. Again, these poems smuggled out of a prison became an international sensation. And by the way, Castro was now in a bind. What does he do with this now world-famous poet? By the way, the Russians had the same problem with Solzhenitsyn. So many people would ask me, why didn't they just kill him? They couldn't now. And plus, as you can imagine, Castro wanted his soul. And if he killed him, Vyadaros would have won. And so Vyadaros understood that the dictator's pride was also his, in the end, Achilles' heel. So let's hear from Armando Vyadaros and his talk to the Beckett Fund and to Americans and to citizens worldwide about governments and their ability to censor, their ability to use force to get one to think or not think what they want to think. Let's take a listen. A muchos de ustedes, especialmente a los jóvenes, les parecerá que procedo de otra época o de un lugar remoto. For many of you, particularly for you young people, it may seem that I come from a faraway land from a long, long time ago. Amigos jóvenes, Puede que nunca sufran la experiencia de ser llevados a punta de pistola como me ocurrió a mí por mantenerme fiel a mi conciencia. Young friends, you may never be taken away at gunpoint as I was for staying true to your conscience. Pero hay otras, pero hay 
muchas maneras de verse silenciado en sus escuelas, en sus universidades, en sus centros de trabajo. But there are many other ways to take you away and to imprison your body and your mind. There are many ways you can be silenced in your schools, your universities, your workplace. Les advierto que igual que existe una pequeña distancia entre Estados Unidos y Cuba, hay una distancia muy pequeña entre la democracia y una dictadura donde el gobierno decide lo que creemos y lo que hacemos. I warn you, just as there's a very short distance between the United States and Cuba, there's a very short distance between a democracy and a dictatorship where the government tells you what you do, what do you think, and how to live. Y a veces la libertad no es arrebatada a punta de pistola, sino mediante un pedazo de papel cada vez, una ley aparentemente insignificante cada vez, un silenciamiento cada vez. And sometimes your freedom is not taken away at gunpoint, but instead it is done one piece of paper at a time, what seemingly meaningless rule at a time, one small silencing at a time. Tengan cuidado, amigos jóvenes. Nunca cedan, nunca permitan que el gobierno o cualquier otra persona o entidad les diga lo que pueden o no pueden creer, lo que pueden o no pueden decir, o lo que sea que sus propias conciencias les ordenen hacer. Never allow the government or anyone else to tell you what you can and cannot believe, what you can and cannot say, or what your conscience is telling you to do or not to do. Un país que no es perfecto pero que nos permite vivir en una sociedad donde cada cual puede tener una opinión diferente a la de otra persona y a la del gobierno. Our country is not perfect, but nevertheless, it still allows us to live in a society where we can hold a different view from each other and a different view from the government. Algo que no solamente se tolera en una democracia, sino que se define como un derecho que debe protegerse por la ley. This is not something that is merely tolerated in our society, but instead is a right that is protected by our own laws. And again, I think the telling line there in that reading, by the way, that translation was by the Beckett Fund's executive director, Christina Arriaga. And she's just terrific. And sometimes your freedom is not taken away at gunpoint, but instead it is done one piece of paper at a time, one seemingly meaningless rule at a time, one small silencing at a time. So well said. And we'll leave with one last poem. And Faith picked this one out. It's called Heroic. Pens, pencils, ink, because they don't want me to write and they've sunk me here in this punishment cell, but they aren't going to drown my rebellion that way. They've taken everything from me, or almost everything. I still have my smile. The proud sense that I'm a free man, an eternally flowering garden in my soul. They've taken everything from me, pens, pencils, but I still have life's ink, my own blood, and I'm still writing poems with that. Fidel Castro, Armando Valladares. This is Our American Stories.
our American stories, and that's right, you heard it, you heard her. It's time for our roundup of Judge Judy, and we watch it so you don't have to. It's one of the great shows in American history, and it's still on, and it's on an hour every day. That's baloney. No, it's true. You just don't watch it. I do. Anytime I get a chance, 4 to 5 o'clock in Memphis, Judge Judy's on for an hour. Anything else, Judge? Just do me a favor. Step yourself outside. You're irritating me. <laughs> it's my courtroom. And so, Greg, what do we got this week? What do we got from Judge Judy? Um, well, this is the case of the moronic, foolish, marginal mother. And those are Judge Judy's words, so we're kind of knowing what we're getting into here. Yeah, I think we do. Jesse, let's, uh, let's take a listen. This is Judge Judy. David Johnson is suing his ex-wife, Kathleen Kreftmeyer, for the cost of a paternity test and lost wages. David says Kathleen told his 11-year-old daughter that he was not her biological father. Quiet in the courtroom. All rise. I can't wait to hear the details of this case. Mr. Johnson, you and the defendant had been married. You have two children together, and you were divorced for the last 10 years. Yes, ma'am. The children are 11. And 15. Yes, ma'am. So that when you divorced, your youngest daughter was a year old. Right. And your oldest was five. Yes, ma'am. Your complaint is that your former wife insisted upon a paternity test after all this time, questioning whether the 11-year-old, who has been your daughter since birth, was your biological child. Is your claim that you had an agreement with her that if the test proved that you were the child's father, that she would pay for the test. That's correct, Your Honor. The defendant, put your hand down. The defendant, who I'm going to get to in a minute, says that it was your present wife's idea to have this paternity test. She just was accommodating. You have a copy of your judgment of divorce? I don't, Your Honor. Do you have a copy of your judgment? I'd like to see it, please. You filed for divorce, is that right? Yes, I did. You were the plaintiff. The grounds were irreconcilable differences. Yes. Is that right? Yes. When you filed the complaint for irreconcilable differences, you listed two children. Is that right? Yes. Two girls? Yes. You asked for child support for both girls, correct? Yes. Yes. Good. Now, if you sense a certain harshness in my tone, it's because unless I was reading incorrectly in your answer, you say that five years ago, when your daughter was six years old, you had a talk with her, and you told her that there was a chance that he wasn't her father. Yes. And you did that because I don't believe in keeping secrets from my kids. Yes. You're a moron. You are a moron. I eat morons like you up for breakfast. (laughs) Oh, she does. She does. And by the way, this is why people love Judge Judy. I think she says the things that 90% of America is thinking, and she just says it. And by the way, for those who don't know how Judge Judy came to be known, 60 Minutes, many years ago, did a 15-minute piece of one of their long segments on Judge Judy's family courtroom, which, by the way, for those of you who live in the New York area, was notoriously entertaining such that it was always filled to capacity. And she entertained the courtroom, she dispersed justice, and 60 Minutes did a piece. Then they did another piece a year later, 30 Minutes. And from that came a hit book, and of course, this remarkable show. Right! Yeah, that's right. Hey, look, can I, can I plug you without a... Okay. Look, okay. Judge Judy is not done, though, with this case. Take a listen. You are an example of why people should have to take tests before they're allowed to have children. 
Why in the world would you tell a six-year-old child that somebody who she believed was her father, who it turns out is her father, might not be her father? Because there was that chance. He knew his mom Don't knew, tell me what he knew. knew. I'm not asking you what he knew. I'm not asking you what his mother knew. I'm asking you why you would tell that to a six-year-old child. David never had really anything to do with them kids. He was out of their life. It wasn't like she knew him as the only father ever. Yeah. Just a second. Who are you? Boyfriend. Do you work? Yes. What do you do for an alleged living? I'm construction. Cross your hands. You work for your father? Yes, I do. Move over there. Are you paid in check or cash? Cash. How do I know that? How did I know to ask such a good question? Hmm? How did I know that? I don't know, Your Honor. <laughs> What's your social security number? And six. When was the last time you filed tax returns? A couple years back. Mm -hmm. How did I know to ask that question? You think that I'm psychic? You think that I have a crystal ball back there? No. How many children do you have? I don't have any. Sit down. Don't make any. Not with her. Yes, ma'am. Do you understand? Yes, ma'am. Something's wrong with her. Big time. Much smarter than you are. Oh. On your best day, you're not as smart as I am on my worst day. No, no. And by the way, again, this is why Judge Judy's amazing. I mean, she just, she reads people as if she'd grown up, well, in the street corners of New York City where there were three-card Monte artists and con artists everywhere. She just sniffs them out. Let's keep going. Before you have a discussion with a child and tell a six-year-old child that there's a chance that she's a... You have a paternity test. If you have a question, then you know. You don't tell her first because you feel as if you have to get it off your chest that you were messing around. He was messing around first, Your Honor. Who cares? He didn't become pregnant. As far as I know, that's not a possibility yet. And she's really ticked. That's the other thing we love about it. She's not, she's not acting here. It's righteous indignation. Judge Judy turns to the father. Mr. Johnson, I don't understand why your children live with her. I don't get that. Maybe she's the better parent. Maybe between the two of you, as marginal a human being as she is, maybe she's more capable of raising them. That would be very sad for your children. Now, tell me your version of the events surrounding this paternity test. Your Honor, I'm a truck driver. Um, I was on my way back from Utah. I uh, got a phone call from my mother saying that we had a little problem. Step up, please. Your last name is? Stenkamp. Why did you call your son and when? I believe it was on the 25th of August. It was their week to have the girls. And Amanda... Whose week to have the girls? David and his wife's. It's split custody, the state of Idaho. So uh, me and his wife went and picked the girls up at the police station from Kathy and her boyfriend. And Amanda just didn't seem to be right. And so during dinner, she was helping cook. And I said, you know, is something wrong Grandma can help you with? Yes. Mama took me to see some man named Jay and said that it was my dad and that David was not my dad and that she was going to have a paternity test done, take away my dad David's rights, and whoever this guy is over here was going to adopt her as Mr. his. Mr. Genius over here? Yes. Mr. Never to Files tax her. returns paid in cash? And, and I said, Amanda, you are our child. So this, clearly, this test 
put her mind at rest. Yes, ma'am. I assume that somebody made her aware of the test results. Mm-hmm. Yes, Who did? ma'am. He I did. did. And Judge Judy turns right on back to the mother. All I know is, madam, you are one of the most marginal people that I've come across in a long time, and you haven't even said two words. You're going to pay for this paternity test, and I'm going to tell you why. Because you created the situation that placed doubt in the mind of an 11-year-old child without having proof positive first. And for no reason. Because I'm sure this person, Jay, that you took her to see was a bum. She has never met him. How did she know his name? I have told her his name, but she has never seen him ever. What difference does it make? What context did you tell her his name? I told that he may be her father? Yes. You're a moron! And you still don't even get it. You still don't get it. Does she work? No, ma'am. She doesn't work? No, ma'am. You pay child support? I, we have split custody. Neither one of us pay child support. How much was the paternity test? The receipt here for $275. And how much money did you lose by not going to work that day? I lost uh, $560. It, it was a load. I drive truck. I don't care what it was. $560. That's what you lost. Is that correct? Correct. What? Are you going to tell me that you do work? I just got my SSI. Would you I just do, quit would you, Walmart. Would you answer my question? Are you going to tell me that you do work? Not right now. I do not. I am disabled. You have any problem with her performing her household duties, sir? Once in a while, yes. Doesn't inhibit you from being her boyfriend, right? No, ma'am. No, ma'am. Judgment for the plaintiff in the amount of $835. Step out. Pardon excuse. And by the way, when she finds out these people get SSI and they're in their 30s, which means they're going to get paid by us the rest of her life, this really sends her off the rails. And by the way, I'm just hoping some government official arrests these people because she's clearly able-bodied. She's a scam artist. She got another guy not paying taxes, working off the books. And this is why people love Judge Judy. And by the way, you'd think that she's a Republican listening to this. She's a Democrat. She's just outraged at government stupidity. And she's really outraged at absolute inane behavior by human beings and just deeply immoral behavior by human beings. And it's damned entertaining. We got any uh, good ones on the hopper, Greg? Not yet. Not yet. No. That huh? is an untenable situation for somebody to have to live with. Hey, listen. But there, there's something I want to I bring out here yep, with yep. this thing. Okay. And, and that's this whole... Cause Everybody what? probably is looking at this woman and saying she's awful. But I think there's a universal kind of thing happening here, and that is this kind of parent bashing that happens among married and divorced people. And in itself, it's, it's child abuse, and people really need to make sure that they're not bashing their, their partner or their former partner in front of their kids. Yeah. Good. Yeah, good. And that's why she good. called him a moron, by the way. That's why she called her a moron, and she is a moron. And this is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We love Judge Judy, and we love bringing Judge Judy to you. And thanks, Jesse, for working the soundboard, as always. Listen to me. Just answer this question. Not only are you not a very nice person, you're also a slob.
Softly and tenderly Jesus is calling Calling for you and for me See on the portals He's waiting and watching Watching for you and for me Come home Come home Ye who are weary Come home Earnestly, tenderly Jesus is calling Calling, oh sinner this is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Willie Nelson cover Softly and Tenderly. A few weeks ago, we did Rolling Stone's top 20 cover songs, and we promise you that we do our favorites today, and then one day we'll take your favorites. We're also going to ask songwriters, we're going to start to interview some of our best songwriters in America, we're going to ask them for their favorite covers as well. And Softly and Tenderly is a Christian hymn, composed and written by Will L. Thompson in 1880. Allegedly, when evangelist Dwight L. Moody was in the hospital, barred from seeing visitors, although Thompson had arrived, Moody insisted that Thompson be let in, whereupon Moody told him this, Will, I would rather have written softly and tenderly Jesus is calling than anything I have been able to do in my whole life. And I think Willie Nelson would agree. And that was one of Greg's favorite covers. And then the other, well, the original, Somewhere Over the Rainbow, by Judy Garland. Some place where there isn't any trouble. Do you suppose there is such a place, Toto? There must be. It's not a place you can get to by a boat or a train. It's far, far away. Behind the moon, beyond the rain. And that song was written by Harold Arlen, who, by the way, we've got to do an hour on his life. We could do an hour, actually, on how this song got written. There was a great article in New Yorker magazine about how this song came to be and how E.Y. Harburg, the lyricist, fixed it, because there was a problem in this song. And when you hear the story, you won't believe it. It's terrific. Judy Garland sang it in the movie, and it launched her into megastardom, one of the great first singing actresses. And now we've got... The cover that Greg likes the most. And Greg, how am I pronouncing this singer's name? What's, what's his name? Don't ask me, ask Jesse. Jesse? Uh, I've got it written down here. Hold on. It's Israel Kamaka Vivo Ole. Is. <laughs> known as Is. And here's his version. A demo session from 1988 that turned into a smash.
two covers and now we move to jesse and i think it should be noted though that this song was done in one single take yep. which is amazing and then it disappeared for a while on a producer's table yeah and then four or five years later the session was played to someone else and voila they played in the movie a uh, life is a house uh, life is house something like that and yep and it's loaded yeah well now to jesse's pick <laughs> and the original song well it's known for its incredible saxophone riff and it's Jerry Rafferty's 1978 smash hit, Baker Street. This song, which folks had come to know and love for that sax riff, well, that saxophone riff had actually been sort of lifted from a song called Half a Heart. And take a listen. This is Steve Marcus. It is darn close. <laughs> Back then, there wasn't intellectual property lawsuits, but today, oh my goodness, <laughs> that is a slam dunk. That's not the cover, though. Jerry Rafferty is not covering or stealing Steve Marcus's work. When we come back, you're starting to hear right now the beginnings of this cover, and it is Jesse's favorite. It's the Foo Fighters version, the guitar replacing the saxophone on Baker Street. More covers after these messages. This is Our American Stories.
brought me back from being too far gone. You're as smooth as Tennessee whiskey. You're as sweet as strawberry wine. You're as warm as a glass of brandy. And I stay stoned on your love all the time. And you're listening to David Allen Coe's recording, the original recording. Of a great song by Dean Dillon and Linda Hargrove. And Dean Dillon was one of George Strait's key writers and one of the great Nashville writers. And that's the original version. This is Jesse's number two. And we are doing our top cover songs. We did Rolling Stones a few weeks ago. Everybody loved it. And they said, what are yours? And by the way, we'll be asking you what yours are in our next version. And Jesse's favorite cover version of David Allen Coe's. And by the way, George Jones did a hell of a cover. But here is Chris Stapleton's more bluesy, countrified bluesy version of the song. Used to spend my nights out in the ballroom. But you rescued me from reaching for the bottom And brought me back Being too far gone You're as It's Tennessee whiskey And there you have it. And Chris Stapleton's touring, opening for Guns N' Roses right now in some parts of the country. And that's a heck of a show. Now we're on to Alex's picks. Alex isn't here. This is painful, but we decided to play it and expose Alex's musical tastes. And they are what they are, folks. We're not judging. Britney Spears is toxic. Here it is. Baby, can't you see? I'm calling Okay, I can't, I can't do anymore. That's very tough. Uh, but this is the cover song. Again, it's not the original he likes. It's the cover. And this is Local H, their version of Toxic. Baby, can't you see I'm calling a girl like you to 
One of his favorites. We got to give him a second chance to redeem himself. We got to incorporate a gong here. It's just not. I I think that's rough. That is rough. That is rough. The rest are a lot easier on the ears. (laughs) They are. Uh, Let's take. By the way, this takes guts to cover this song. This is the original, and it's Robert Plant and Jimmy Page and John Bonham and company doing what they do best. This is Cashmere from Physical Graffiti. It's hard to stop playing yeah. that. I, actually, that actually is, I think, a radio crime to stop playing Cashmere. <laughs> but here's the cover. Maya Baisir's version, an Israeli-born American classical cellist. Here she is doing her version of the Zeppelin classic. Brother Joey. And Brother Joey, well, we're going to start off with the original. And you already know what it is. And how many songs, by the way, can you say that about after three hits of a snare? Billy Jean. Michael Jackson. And now for the cover, and it's the Civil Wars. 
And they were a band that was together for a brief time. By the way, John Paul White is the male vocalist here, and he's a heck of a talent. Let's take a listen to the Civil Wars cover. She was more like a beauty queen from a movie scene. Say, don't mind me, but do you mean I am the one who dance on the floor in the round? She said, I'm the one who dance on the floor and around. She told me her name was Billie Jean and she calls the same. And every hair turned with eyes dreamed to be in the one who dance on the floor and around. And there you have it, the Civil Wars version, their cover version of Michael Jackson's song. That is quite something, actually. We'll go out with that and continue with our American Stories cover songs, our rebuttal to Rolling Stones cover songs, the 20 best that we played only a few weeks ago. Be careful what you do, the lie becomes the truth. Not my love. She just a girl claims that I Carter Cash, Baby Ride Easy, originally written and recorded by Richard Dobson. This is John Wood's chance now for his covers, and we are doing our favorite covers. We did the Rolling Stones Top 20 a few weeks ago. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and take a listen. It was terrific, but we had certain songs and artists that we thought should have been there. I'm sure you do, too. We'll be looking for listeners' requests Soon, this is John's favorite cover of that song, and let's take a listen.
I drove a truck You were a waitress I ordered coffee You poured me some Then I'd stop by on my way somewhere later If we mud wrestled I'd see that you won And you're my babe right easy Ride high in the saddle all day Loving is good Often easy I fall off the wagon and wheel Ride high away And that's Father John Misty. His version of the Johnny and June Carter Cash cover, Baby Ride Easy. Next up, the original John Lennon's Imagine. cover his favorite imagine covered by a perfect circle Before we get to my favorite cover songs, I just wanted to play one or two from my favorite cover singer. And there are very few cover singers out there left, let alone that are famous and can pack houses. And if you ever get to see Joan Osborne as she tours around the country, do it. And let's take a listen to the original that she covered and made 
and she just kills clubs with this. Aretha Franklin had a shot at this record and turned it down. Dusty Frank Springfield did it. It was a big hit once, and then came Pulp Fiction. Take a listen. When they gather around and started talking, that's when Billy would take me walking. Out through the backyard we go walking. Then he look into my eyes. Lord knows to my surprise, the only one who could ever reach me was the son of a preacher man. The only boy who could ever teach me was the son of a preacher man. You see what he was. And that came off the album Dusty in Memphis, and that stack sound is right there. Let's take a listen to a live version of Joan Osborne. And when we come back after these messages, my favorite covers. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Cover songs for the hour. documentary about the band that recorded almost all the music for all of the great Motown records and the singer they chose this band to close out this show in Detroit was none other than Joan Osborne there's a terrific documentary on it let's take a listen to the original version of what becomes of the broken hearted and this by Jimmy Ruffin When we come back, you're going to hear Joan Osborne's cover of this song and then my few favorites of all time. Cover songs here on Our American Stories, our favorites, the crew's favorites. 
More after these messages. We're listening to Joan Osborne closing out the spectacular documentary. And it's the legendary band, the Funk Brothers, that played almost all the great Motown classics for all of those great singers. Let's take a listen to the way Joan closed things out with these old timers. And that's Joan Osborne, one of the great cover singers in this country. And I've had the privilege of seeing her so many times. And now we get to my three favorite covers and my favorite songwriter in the world, Bruce Springsteen. Well, this one he wrote for Patti Smith. But here's his version. Take me now, baby, here's I am. Pull me close, child, understand. Desire's hunger is the fire I breathe Love is a banquet on which we feed Come on now, try and understand But it was Patti Smith who, in 1978, made this a smash hit, and it launched her career to the to the world. Here it is. Take me now, baby, here as I am. Pull me close, try and understand. Desire is hunger, is the fire I breathe. 
By the way, Bruce also wrote Pink Cadillac for a pretty good singer and Fire for some pretty good singers. He loved writing R&B for women and African-American women, no less. And now one of the classics from Broadway, a song called Summertime from the classic opera, George Gershwin, Porgy and Bess. Let's take a listen to the original. Voices were what theater voices sounded like back then. Very affected. Wouldn't exactly pass for musical theater today. But Gershwin's lyrics, Stephen Sondheim, perhaps the greatest lyricist in the history of Broadway, said, those are the best lyrics ever written in the musical theater. Listen to Sam Cooke handle these same words. A very different and more stirring version. Summertime and The living is easy Fish are jumping And cotton is high Your dad is rich And your ma is good looking Very different version. Very different version. Now, I think we're going to add one more to this mix because Jesse just called it out. I want to play Otis Redding's original version of a song he wrote that a lot of people don't know was his song because somebody else made it much more famous. Let's take a listen to Otis Redding, one of the great soul singers of the late 1960s. Oh, 
And here's what happened when Aretha Franklin got her hands on it. And that made the Franklin fortune, but it also made Otis Redding's family a whole lot of money, too, because he was the writer of record. And last but not least, my favorite cover song, because it's my bride's. And let's go with the original, a band I'm not too crazy about, nor is she, but one that's popular. And it's Chris Martin, it's Coldplay, and it's The Scientist. out our favorite cover songs the crew's favorite cover songs on our american stories with willie nelson's recent and stirring rendition of this chris martin song And we close things out. Our favorite cover songs, next time it's yours. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.